guests today are Alexa Zeitz and Lauren Ferry. We're absolutely delighted to have them with us on our little podcast, in part because we came across a new paper, a working paper by them on the relevance of China to the debt restructuring process. And this is a question that has bedeviled the international restructuring crowd for a couple of years now. I confess, I I have been a little bit skeptical about the level of China bashing. Reading Ellen's paper made me think that particularly their empirical evidence and the results of their interviews made me think, okay, there, there's much more here and I just don't understand it. And so, as we generally do, we reached out to Alexa and Lauren, whom we didn't know before, and they very kindly agreed to join us. Now, just as a backdrop to the conversation we're having today, I want to mention the filing of a U.S. government amicus brief in the litigation involving Sri Lanka and Hamilton Bank, something that we've talked about a few times on this podcast. And the the reason I'm mentioning it is not just that it is quite unusual for the U.S. government to file in a case that is arguably not that relevant to the U.S. government, although they try to make the argument, uh, but that in the brief, they mention that China has been a problem, a problem in getting the restructuring uh, done in a smooth way. And this is with particular reference to the process with Sri Lanka. And that, that tees up Alexa and Lauren's paper quite nicely, and I'm hoping we can ask them about their views on the Sri Lanka negotiations specifically. But first things first, Alexa and Lauren, welcome to our little podcast. Thank you so much for having us. We are thrilled to talk all things China and debt and the IMF. (laughs) Well, we are very excited about it. And I want to start by asking you about uh, what motivated you to get into this particular area, because it's not one that's a big topic. Yeah, so... This paper uh, began, I guess, like all good papers, uh, with a conversation at a conference (laughs) uh, in February 2020, just before the world shut down. Uh, Lauren and I were at a conference together, and I had been working on uh, Chinese lending in Africa for a while already um, in my almost completed book project, I look at how sort of the expansion of Chinese lending and private lending to African countries changed the relationship of those countries with the World Bank and with more traditional donors. And so I had been looking at the role of uh, China as a lender 
uh, sort of on the way up, if you will, uh, in the last two decades uh, and times when, you know, liquidity was abundant, uh, at least in the last decade and a half, and when countries sort of could benefit from Chinese lending in expanding their options and also expanding their bargaining power. Um, and But I was starting to hear rumors, of course, of countries facing difficult uh, situations servicing their debts and was wondering how would sort of creditor heterogeneity or more specifically China, how would that play out in a debt crisis situation? Um, and Lauren and I sort of started talking about this and um, Lauren can talk about her research on government's relationships with private creditors, but we were trying to understand how would a restructuring process look different with China as a creditor, but especially with creditors sort of operating outside of the conventional bilateral framework. And to try and answer this question, we realized we would have to collect new data because it would be hard to assess, you know, exactly how debt crises were becoming more difficult. Um, and so we embarked on a bit of a data collection process uh, that maybe Lauren can can describe in more detail. Absolutely. So this paper is a bit of a right question at the right time kind of paper. Um, as Alexa said, she's coming at this from the lens of China's expanded role in development finance. I come at this paper as less of the Chinese expert um, and more as someone who's thought about debt restructuring and primarily for private creditors. And my thinking when we came into this paper is that that literature says very clearly, as you add more creditors and you add more heterogeneity among creditors, we're going to see more hangups in the restructuring process. And so Alex and I put our heads together to think about what this looks like in the official bilateral sector as you add China to the table and also potentially other new creditors who are now dealing with borrowers who are having trouble servicing their debts. But we we also just kind of got lucky that we were just hearing rumors and kind of rumblings and anecdotes when we first thought about this paper. And a couple months later, um, this is the thing making headlines. And so it kind of gave us even more to work with and even more thoughts to where we could collect data. And funny enough, our, our initial project, right, every paper has 17 versions. Our initial version was to think about how this increase in actors at the negotiating table for restructuring official bilateral debt was going to impact the Paris Club. Um, and at that time, we talked to people at the Paris Club, we looked at data that we could gather from the Paris Club, and there just wasn't enough that was going to be publicly available to us um, to work with. Interestingly, there's now another great paper um, by other scholars, Cameron Ballard-Rosa and Lena Mosley and Peter Rosendorf, that actually now can get at this question. Um, but everyone we talked to said, well, think about the IMF. The IMF is the center of this debt restructuring architecture. If it's going to affect anyone, it's going to be the IMF. They're, they're at the middle. And so that's where we turned to think about how we are actually going to get at this question that was more relevant than it was when we started from a systematic perspective. And so we can talk more, but we spent, uh, what, about 18 months, Alexa, and had multiple research assistants really combing IMF archives to look for and code a systematic measure of what the negotiation process and timeline looks like for the IMF to negotiate programs with borrower countries in debt distress. And so this is this is a, a really sort of interesting point as a preface 
to talking in more detail about the paper and its methods. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to link back to the question of creditor heterogeneity just to get a bit more background for the paper. I know uh, um, many of our listeners will have uh, some to potentially a lot of familiarity with Chinese lending. But it, it strikes me that there are lots of different ways that the advent of China as an official creditor kind of adds to the mix of, of creditor interests. Um, it, it's not just the volume of lending, although maybe you want to describe um, lending from the, say, Paris club countries, but it's also the nature of the lending. You know, my, my sense is that Chinese lending uh, is more often linked to longer term projects and, and development type financing to the type of instruments uh, that the uh, the lending's implemented through to the the specific range of entities that are doing the lending so there there are lots of different variables i guess that are um, potential sources of complication and i'm wondering if you can give us some of the background to just all the ways that china uh, sort of adds uh, to the the mix of creditors and and increases creditor heterogeneity well, I'll start with one is that we often just to, you know, save breath, talk about China as a creditor, but really we're talking about up to 30 different Chinese entities that are lending to developing countries. And there is no coordinated system, right, within China. None of these entities speak for China, so to say. Um, so when we say China, we're not really talking about one new creditor at the table. We're really talking about the average restructuring three, five, six, um, you know, a number of different voices who represent very different interests, even within China at the negotiating table. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, so other bilateral creditors that have more of a history of lending have worked out sort of internal procedures over time about who takes the lead in designing loans, but then also in managing restructuring when that arises. Um, and that process, we're sort of watching that play out in real time now when it comes to China. And that's been obviously exacerbated by the spate of crises since the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I guess a few other things that I would emphasize in terms of the design of loans and then the approach to crisis resolution. So on the, on the design of loans, you're absolutely right, Mark, that um, you know, the loans are project financing, um, and that can sometimes, and the sort of structure of that project financing can make them more complex to restructure. Um, often that involves the use of, you know, collateralization that might increase the seniority of Chinese debts and make other creditors anxious that um, they're going to be sort of beat uh, to the back of the line if uh, restructuring were to happen. Um, the, the other is, and we can talk a little bit about how this is sort of comparative to other creditors, but is an insistence in some cases on confidentiality around the terms of the loan. And this is certainly something that Western creditors and multilateral institutions have emphasized under the heading of debt transparency to try and get Chinese lenders to be more transparent. Um, and so that's sort of in terms of the design of the loans. And then when it comes to crisis resolution, you know, so far, um, in the cases sort of leading up to this recent bump in uh, debt crises, the approach of Chinese lenders seems to have been uh, sort of extend and delay, so often refinancing or extending the maturity of loans, and certainly always doing this all on a bilateral basis. So 
you know, in agreements between the creditor and the borrowing government rather than coordinated with other creditors. Um, and so in that way, Chinese lenders, whether that's China Exim Bank or the China Development Bank, seems to be behaving more actually like commercial creditors and how they have often behaved. And uh, I'd, I'd point to the work of Muyang Chen, um, who's an assistant professor at Peking University, who's done some really great research on um, on China in the sovereign debt space. And she really draws this analogy between sort of Chinese lenders and private creditors. So if I let me let me just quickly follow up, uh, if, if you don't mind. One of the things that uh, one of the narratives that has been present for the last couple of years is the the narrative that Chinese lenders all uh, speak with one voice, uh, in a sense, coming back to Lauren's original point, um, uh, indicating that 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 is a pretty stylized view that is not um, uh, not necessarily matching the reality. I'm wondering, though, um, can you just give us a little more background too about this? In one sense, it's a um, just a, an initial area of confusion where at least um, the kind of pretense of many private creditors and many official Western lenders has been that China is using that lack of clarity about what entities really are for all practical purposes, the government and what entities are meaningfully separate from the government. And China has been using that ambiguity kind of strategically to to favor itself as a creditor. Uh, And then there's been this countervailing narrative, which is basically that these other creditors don't just don't understand the nature of Chinese lending. And uh, as things become clear over time, um, those concerns will go away. And I'm just, I'm I'm wondering uh, if you have thoughts on just the kind of general lack of clarity about which entities really are functionally uh, the equivalent of the Chinese government and which entities are functionally distinct from it. Is there getting to be greater clarity on that question? Was there always clarity? What's the the kind of status of that that question? So I guess I should start by saying this is also something that I struggle with. Um, and uh, there may be other scholars who have a have a better handle on this, but I think that this is still something that people are unclear about, especially in this tension that I think you've identified, Mark, which is sort of, is this strategic use of ambiguity and is this really quite instrumental or is this genuinely a clashing of two different sort of perspectives and systems? You know, I would say what speaks for the latter interpretation is China's sense that there is a distinction between, you know, commercial lenders, which may be public, but lend on a commercial basis. And the justification for that reading for some of China's leading lenders is that they are not financed through direct transfers um, from the government budget, but instead raise their financing in private markets and then lend onward. Now, of course, that's also the model that multilateral development banks use. So, you know, a commercial basis for funding doesn't necessarily make a lender private in the sort of Paris Club's understanding of a distinction between official and private creditors. But I think that's an indication for the fact that there are sort of different understandings of lenders 
clashing together here. And, you know, my own sense is that that, I think there is some credibility to that view that really, you know, China rose to being a leading lender um, with a sort of different approach about what the public role is in the allocation of credit um, and with a different structure of leading development banks um, than Western creditors had at the same time. And so that that might be, that might partly explain this. I will say also that, you know, these debates really came up in the context of the uh, G20's debt service suspension initiative and then the common framework where there were some very, like there were real consequences of where this parameter is drawn as uh, sort of commercial and which count as public, mostly in terms of this in the common framework about what the sequencing is about who participates in restructuring when. Um, yeah, I think that in the time period that Lauren and I look at in the paper, which was sort of up to 2019, this was already starting to come up because of course in the IMF's uh, sort of debt sustainability assessments and its sense of when creditors are expected to contribute, they're also trying to draw this line of which creditors they're asking are expecting to contribute, um, but it's really come to a head in, in recent years. Um, do I think that there is a resolution? My understanding is that you know the hope is that the, the round table is going to allow for some exchange between creditors on this. Um, but maybe we can talk about when we come to some of the cases, whether we think that there's actually been sort of learning uh, and exchange. I'll just add that um, part of this confusion and part of our underlying confusion as well is we were able to speak to an expert um, in infrastructure lending. And, you know, he has consulted on the legal side with some of these Chinese creditors. And we were told that part of perhaps this disjuncture is also driven by the fact that there's a disjuncture between the bankers who are providing and monitoring these loans and the actual decision makers who are making these decisions. And um, as it was described to us, the bankers make recommendations, but they're not always actually in the room um, when the political operatives make a decision about how this debt is going to be treated when it's in distress. Um, and so it seems like there's both a disjuncture at the definitional level, but also at the decision-making level about how these things are going to be treated. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a clear systematic answer internally or externally yet, um, which perhaps leads to your confusion, my confusion, all of our confusion, um, on exactly what the long-term definitions are going to be as we move forward. So I, I confess that the whole the whole thing confuses me, as do most things in life. But from a private market perspective, when we're thinking about debt contracts, and Mark and I spend a lot of time thinking about debt contracts and why they have the terms that they do, we generally assume, especially if you have large, sophisticated players, that these players are able to ask for the terms that they wish. So, for example, if I am organizing a private debt issuance to Zambia or Sri Lanka, and I am very concerned about how their Chinese borrowing is going to be treated when there is a debt restructuring, I can 
A, ask for disclosure. B, I can ask for specific promises as to how that Chinese lending will be treated. I can define what will count as official lending and private lending. This is, this is what one does when one negotiates a debt instrument. So for all of these lenders, all big, sophisticated players to now be crying exposed, oh, we we don't know about China. China's so confusing. Uh, China's putting in these secret terms. I don't understand. Like You can ask for the disclosure of these terms ahead of time. In fact, if it is a offering in the United States, uh, you have to disclose all of this, at least what your lending is. So you can ask for them to do a registered offering. Uh, you can ask about whether or not there are special confidentiality terms. It, so it, part of this could be, oh, China so new that we didn't know to ask these terms. If that's the case, then all of these problems are going to be ameliorated over time. On the other hand, maybe there's some kind of coordination problem that uh, makes it impossible to ask for these terms, or, or maybe just, you know, lenders are really, uh, they get embarrassed easily and they don't they don't want to ask for impolite terms. Uh, now I'm being completely sarcastic, but I, I just don't, I don't get it this is this is not the kind of coordination problem that we have in private lending where you have uh, thousands of dispersed creditors and standard form terms that can't be modified because the investment bankers won't let you modify it did this just seems i don't know a, a problem that can be solved or a problem that is being made up exposed for other strategic reasons Question mark. So I, I think this question is fascinating. Um, and I love thinking about the analogies to the private credit market. And I think there, right, the innovations take time. We only saw collective action clauses and cross default clauses when we realized there was a problem. And so I think you raise a good question about whether we will see this in the future, right, that we're going to require disclosures from other groups of creditors going forward. Um, I think part of the difficulty in that um, pragmatically is two things, is that China often requires confidentiality around the terms. And so at the moment, some of these Chinese contracts from a non-legal perspective um, imply that the borrower would not be able to disclose that information to another creditor. So right, that's a our larger legal question that would have to be answered in some kind of new regime. The other probably more benign hurdle to solve is that the argument's been made that a lot of Chinese lending actually goes from state-owned enterprise in China to state-owned enterprise in the borrower country. And a lot of these borrower countries don't have the bureaucratic accounting mechanisms to actually track these loans. And so there's also the question of how much of this information is at the borrower's fingertips when they want to go out and provide it. Um, to bondholders or to the private market or to other official creditors, you know, we get the sense that a lot of the difficulties on the IMF side is going in and verifying what those loan levels actually are because of these, what 
others have called hidden debts that might be on the balance book. And so hopefully we will see learning, but I think there's some real legal and bureaucratic hurdles um, that are going to make this perhaps more challenging than we might think. The other thing I would add briefly is that um, I think that the, you know, the mechanism that bilateral creditors have used historically to be aware of the commitments that other bilateral creditors have made is the Paris Club, right? <laughs> and that is a context in which creditors come together, share information on a regular and predictable basis, especially about creditors, uh, borrowers, pardon me, that might be in distress, but also just to be apprised of those sort of uh, behavior of other lenders. And then in the sort of age um, concessional lending space, there are norms promulgated and rules through the OECD's Development Assistance Committee that sort of govern the standard terms of lending. Now, China is not a member of the Paris Club, nor are they a member of the OECD DAC. And so I think on the side of, you know, why, why are bilateral creditors in the dark or, you know, claim to be surprised about the terms of this lending, I think some of it is because they have relied on institutions that enabled a great deal of coordination among the traditional bilateral creditors, and China has been outside of those institutions. Um, and so that means that that same information exchange and that sort of cultivation of trust uh, didn't, didn't happen there. So this is probably a good time to focus a little bit more on the paper, although it's complicated, of course, because one lesson um, I think our discussion has driven home is that when I ask my question about lending from China, I'm really asking, uh, I'm obscuring a whole lot of important differences uh, by by collapsing all of these lenders. But you do um, investigate the effect of lending from China on debt restructuring negotiations, and in particular on the functioning of the IMF. And you you alluded to that measure earlier, but I'm hoping you can describe for us what exactly uh, your paper found and how you, how you went about um, uh, empirically testing it. S- sorry, and, and um, Alexa, maybe you can take that one, although um, I'm, okay. Uh, okay. or at least start for that one. I'm sure both of you have uh, stuff <laughs> to say. Yeah, so the, as Lauren said earlier, we were sort of looking for how we could find places in the debt restructuring process where this might be, where things might get hung up or stuck on um, difficulties associated with coordination with China. And so the place we decided to look was in the IMF's archives, um, in program documents that are released after an IMF program is uh, agreed and approved by the executive board. And when the IMF releases these documents, they include a note that explains the negotiations that led to the IMF program. And in particular, they note uh, what are known as missions, so travel by IMF staff, usually to the borrowing country to negotiate the terms of the loans. And so what we did is we, for every IMF program um, in the full data set from 1985 to 2020, we recorded the dates Um, on which IMF staff traveled to the borrowing country, and in particular, the number of discrete sort of negotiating trips that had to happen. And the rationale there is that, you know, in in a large majority of cases, these programs are agreed in one set, one trip, basically. The staff has their sort of brief of what they uh, expect in the IMF program. They travel to the country, the details are hashed out, conditions are agreed, uh, they travel back to headquarters, and the board approves the program. But in other cases, uh, negotiations get 
stuck. Um, they can't reach agreement on uh, the terms of the program or additional information is needed. Um, and in those cases, staff sort of return to headquarters and several weeks or months later, they go back to the country and negotiate again. And so what we, what we did in this data is we counted for every IMF program, the number of these discrete negotiations that were required. And we think this really captures in some ways the difficulty of the negotiations because it's costly sort of both financially, but also sort of in terms of bureaucratic effort uh, for the IMF to repeatedly go back and negotiate with the borrower. It's also costly for the borrowing country. And so what we do in the paper is we look at whether countries that owe a larger share of their debt to China, whether they require more negotiating missions in order to receive an IMF program. And we find for those countries that are in default at the time, so they're in debt distress, if they owe more debt to China, they require more negotiating missions in order to receive an IMF program. So this suggests that for those countries where the exposure to China is higher, it's more difficult for them it requires more negotiating effort on the part of the IMF staff and the borrowing country to get to the point where they can reach an agreement. And so that's the sort of headline finding um, in the paper. And we suggest in the paper a couple of different reasons why that, why that might be the case, um, which Lauren can maybe walk through some of those, those mechanisms that, that explain. Sure. Um, and I, I will go back and fill in one thing is that we spent a lot of time thinking about what the connection from high levels of Chinese debt two implications for the IMF's negotiation process would be, given that the IMF is very clear that they stay out of the official restructuring process, right? And here, Chinese debt is so relevant because the IMF comes in, performs a debt sustainability analysis, and they tell creditors, especially official creditors here as the first mover, how much relief needs to be provided to return to future sustainability such that the IMF feels comfortable lending. Um, and so while the IMF is not directly involved in the process by setting the target and refusing to provide a program unless that target is met, they therefore become very reliant on assurances from official bilateral creditors that they will provide adequate relief and that relief will be forthcoming in a timely manner. Um, and so I think that's where this interplay really works out. And I think there's a lot of interpretations of why this plays out the way it does. Um, and, and you hinted at the beginning that there maybe has been an overemphasis on China bashing in the media. And we take a more ambiguous approach and think that there's a lot of reasons that this could be happening, some that are more benign than others. So it's possible, right, that because Chinese debts are less visible or less transparent. It just takes the IMF more time to gather data and perform their debt sustainability analysis. Um, someone we talked to at the fund gave us the example of for Congo on the first mission, the idea was that debts were going to be 80 to 90% of GDP, but then actually through more information finding and through getting into the nitty gritty, um, it was actually revealed that debts were closer to 120% of GDP. So they had to go back to headquarters, regroup and come back, right? So that's just kind of a, a more benign reason um, why Chinese debt might slow down the IMF process and get it a little stuck. But it's also possible that it opens up a larger free riding problem. And here, I think the analogy to the private market really plays out um, that other creditors are going to be concerned that if they provide relief and China doesn't, then right their taxpayer dollars are just being used to compensate the repayment of Chinese loans. And so maybe this is about larger amounts of Chinese debt make other creditors more hesitant to provide their own assurances. 
Um, and then finally, it's possible that Chinese debt provides a plausible exit option for the borrower, where this is borrower driven and the borrower can bargain harder with the IMF for fewer conditions or larger loans um, or prolong the period at which they don't have to agree with the IMF because they have additional funds and additional funding that is being rolled over by Chinese creditors. And so I think this isn't necessarily one perspective on where this comes from. There's a lot of different paths, and most examples are probably a combination of paths through which we see the rise in Chinese debts really slowing down the IMF's process for those countries that are in high levels of debt distress. So I'm wondering, as I was thinking about your paper and these very interesting findings about the process getting slowed down, particularly, and although correct me if I'm wrong, in in sort of these post-COVID debt restructurings, you must have thought about uh, how to correct for other factors. In fact, I know you did because uh, you say so in the paper, but maybe you can explicate uh, this a little bit more. Among the things that have changed significantly and are at issue in a number of the more recent debt restructurings, say, for example, in Africa, but this is true in Sri Lanka, is uh, the large amount of local debt that the country owes. And this was not the case in a lot of prior sovereign debt restructurings. And then there's also the fact that a lot of the borrowing was done in the COVID context. So can you give us a sense of sort of how you corrected for the possibility that those characteristics might be causing delay? One of the wonderful things about your paper is that you not only collect quantitative information, but you've done interviews with participants. And so I'm guessing you have a sort of a really nuanced understanding of, you know, what is it that causes the sand, uh, the sand in the brakes or sand? In, I, I don't know. I'm a terrible driver. So I actually don't even know this car metaphor. I don't know why I'm using a car metaphor. But you know, yeah, you know what I mean. You guys probably are skilled, skilled drivers. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> um, so I guess one quick clarification point, which is that in the paper, we only look at cases up to the COVID pandemic. So we don't include these this most recent state of cases. Oh, whoops, I'm so sorry. It's totally fine. We can talk about those cases because I think they're really interesting. Um, but And part of the reason was because there, they are, we think there are idiosyncratic things going on. I mean, in part in terms of the relationship with the fund, like the fund handed out countries to 86 programs, 86 countries in a very rapid fire way to respond to the pandemic. Um, and countries face sort of really heightened debt distress. Plus then you get the debt service suspension initiative and the common framework. And so in some ways the architecture is starting to change in this in these last two two to three years in a way that makes it difficult to compare to the earlier period. Um, in the earlier period, you know, in terms of other things that might be causing difficulties for borrowing countries, and that might explain why IMF negotiations are especially difficult, you know, we include 
we, in our models, we control for attributes of borrowing countries that might make their negotiations with the IMF more difficult in general. So whether they're more indebted at all, especially whether short-term debt is a larger part of uh, their exposure. We don't look at this local currency, uh, local bond market, um, you know, sort of phenomenon more generally, uh, or in particular, one, and this is a sort of unsatisfying way because it doesn't get at the substance of the question, is we we account for the fact we that over time, negotiations have actually gotten quicker. The fund has gotten quicker over time at this. And so we sort of strip out some of the variation that comes from that. But I think in general, the, this question about how the sovereign debt architecture, which has for a long time presumed basically that the most important external actors are those borrowing, uh, the, those active in the external market and uh, foreign currency debt, um, you know, how that architecture responds as in, uh, you know, Ghana's case, um, where there is so much uh, important participation in the local market. I think, uh, I think that's a really, that's a really interesting question, perhaps one for, for a future paper. Yeah, I think the question of local currency debt, in many ways was left unanswered by the common framework. And so what we're seeing right now, and what's attracting headlines is countries trying to figure out what was left unsaid with the common framework, Um, right? Sri Lanka, Zambia is another case where China really wanted local currency debts included and other official creditors pushed back and eventually it was dropped. Um, But I think we're seeing creditors actively trying to solidify the ambiguities of that initial understanding. Um, And I'll add one of the other things we did think about in the pre-COVID, pre-DSSI, pre-common framework era is that we also know not only has the IMF technically gotten faster at negotiations over time, IMF negotiations also tend to be quicker when we have the United States in particular, but other principles um, in the fund having strategic interest in the borrower country. And so this particular paper, we really think about China, but in another paper, we actually release the data set um, from these IMF negotiating missions that we have collected. And so we do also control for the reality that when the U.S. has a strategic interest in the country, negotiations usually progress faster. And so we kind of have to think about um, attributes on the borrower side and on the other official bilateral creditor side that might be underlying some of where these tensions or easing the tensions might come from. So can we talk a little bit about some of the more recent and ongoing uh, restructuring episodes? And and certainly um, there's plenty in the news about Sri Lanka and about the presence or absence of China from those restructuring negotiations. Is there a sense that there's some kind of learning going on here and that the coordination is improving over time or um, do you, is it too early to, to really get a sense of that? I think that's probably going to depend who you ask. My sense is very much that it's still too early to get a sense of how much learning is happening. I do think the advent of the DSSI and the common framework in and of itself demonstrates learning that there was a problem and there is was this pivotal moment at which to begin to address the problem and share some of the burden. Um, so that was a moment of learning. But right, I, I point to, to Zambia a lot because it really became the test case for how this was going to work. Um, and it is still very much unfinalized. 
Um, and with it being still very much unfinalized um, and the final details not signed, I don't feel super comfortable drawing definitive conclusions, but I know Alexa's thought about this more than I do. So perhaps she feels more strongly. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I were to, you know, like what learning has happened uh, in the common framework, in the round table, you know, how much sort of accommodation or mutual adjustment has there been among bilateral creditors? I think so far, actually, fairly little. Um, you know, if you compare countries that were eligible for the common framework, so Zambia and Ghana, perhaps to a country that isn't eligible for the common framework, like Sri Lanka, you know, you do see differences in terms of the mechanisms by which this unfolded. So, you know, in Zambia and Ghana, China was a part of the official creditor committee that co-chaired meetings. You know, you get sort of for the first time, China participating in a multilateral mechanism to try and address it, you know, a debt restructuring. And in Sri Lanka, which is not eligible for the common framework, they don't, right? China did not join uh, the creditor committee, even though another non-Paris club creditor, India, did. So, um, you know, in terms of the mechanism, there does seem to have been, the common framework changed things a bit. But then in terms of the actual like output of that mechanism, um, I think observers are still lamenting that it's it's moving too slowly, especially for borrowing countries. They they feel it's moving too slowly, um, and that that also kind of depends on who who you ask. Right? Some will say, well, you know, restructurings, especially when there is a change in the sort of architecture for them, they they take a long time, and. Um, that it's not unreasonable that this would take time as there is sort of an effort to try and integrate China more. Um, whereas from the borrower's perspective, these delays are, are painful and they're costly. And um, it's, it's frustrating that there isn't more um, sort of accommodation on the part of creditors. You know, I think that what we're seeing is that there are certain seemingly substantive sticking points that are preventing the, you know, creditors moving forward. Um, and that, includes, for example, what uh, involvement there should be of multilateral development banks in any restructuring. Um, and you know, the, the common framework didn't address these sticking points. They, it's, a, it's a framework. <laughs> it doesn't resolve these sort of deeper substantive issues. And so I think time will tell whether initiatives like the round table um, can kind of lead to creating more of a shared understanding or whether we will continue to sort of muddle through in a bit of a fragmented uh, regime. And I'll mention the one piece of the architecture we haven't mentioned, which is not COVID related, is the IMF's lending into arrears policy, which I actually think could play a very interesting role here, right? It was changed in 2015, really thinking about Russia and Ukraine, that the IMF could lend um, when a borrower was in arrears to one of their official creditors. Um, but Sri Lanka was the first time that the IMF said that they were maybe willing to think about using this policy as a way to get the process moving, even though China had not provided assurances. Now, China then followed that up very quickly with a promise to participate very vaguely in, in debt restructuring. Um, and, and so that, I think, is another institutional innovation that we are just trying to figure out how it's going to play out and how it's going to be used, but it's also on the table um, in perhaps a helpful or unhelpful way. Um, so I think that's part of the conversation. Thank you guys so much. We've 
taken up way too much of your time already, but this, I have so many more questions, including why the IMF can't just say to the countries, as it often does to uh, private creditors, look, we've done our debt sustainability analysis. This is the amount of relief you have to obtain from all of your lenders. And if you can't get us those assurances, uh, we can't lend to you. And then uh, the country can use contractual mechanisms. After all, we are talking about contracts to ensure that that's what it gets from everybody. They can have uh, promises that everybody will be treated equally. Now, maybe I'm uh, failing to see how that can be worked out in practice, uh, although I do know that they're, they're in every one of the recent restructurings, there have been conversations about this. And for example, in Suriname, uh, the, the conclusion was, oh, we have value recovery instruments, so we don't actually need any mechanism. In Sri Lanka, there was some other reason, but it will be it will be so interesting to see how this plays out, and I look forward to reading more of your papers on this. I hope uh, you won't stop writing about this topic, but mostly I just wanted to conclude by saying thank you both so much for joining us. Yeah, the, the silver lining, I guess, of this difficult time is that there are many research questions uh, on this. So uh, thank you so much uh, for having us and thanks for the conversation. We are just thrilled to talk about our work and to share it with people who find it interesting and to keep learning from all the other awesome scholars who are actively working in this space for a, as of right now, very unanswered question. So thank you for having us. Great talking to you.